we're really pleased today to have Julia Mahoney and Ed Kitch with us. We've talked a lot about concerns that there is going to be widespread debt crises in poor countries and in emerging markets, but advanced economies have their own debt troubles too. And, and we've been seeing that now with some of the recurring drama in the Euro area where efforts to reform the ESM treaty are a lot more controversial than it seems like they ought to be. And surprisingly, much of the opposition seems to be coming from the primary likely beneficiary countries like Italy. And, and even more strangely, some of the opposition centers around the attempt to plan sort of ex ante what the restructuring of a Euro area country's debt would look like. So given that backdrop, it seemed like a good opportunity to talk about another advanced economy with a big debt pile, the, the United States. And we were prompted in large part by an essay Julia and Ed wrote that got a whole lot of attention and, and we'll have the link in the show notes. But the essay was about the need to think about what a restructuring of the US public debt would look like. And so we're really excited to talk uh, with Julia and Ed about that. And maybe I'll begin, um, if I can, Julia, with sort of a background question, which is that discussions of the US debt often kind of presume there'll never be a default, uh, other than maybe some short-term technical default related to negotiations over raising the debt ceiling. But the idea is that the US can always uh, raise taxes or print the money. And so there would never be any need for default and there would never be any need potentially for a restructuring. And part of the paper that you and Ed wrote is, is devoted to kind of pushing back against that conventional wisdom. And I'm hoping you can kind of start us off by uh, explaining a little bit about why you think that standard way of thinking about the US public debt is maybe mistaken. So let me turn this over to Ed, who is, uh, who is our resident expert on this. So um, this, uh, in rereading the paper and preparing for this podcast, I, I'm reminded there's a bit of a time warp with the, uh, our underlying essay, although we think it contains much useful discussion. Um, and that is that when we re, uh, worked on that essay, we were thinking, we were fighting against the conventional wisdom that the U.S. debt is risk-free, therefore it can be sold in financial markets at any time in any place. Uh, and uh, the only question about the debt was whether uh, we were transferring burdens to future generations. I think that's a very unfortunate rhetoric uh, because uh, uh, our grandchildren are facing problems many years from now and we have our own. And as many critics have pointed out, uh, history suggests that our grandchildren will be much better off economically than we are. So what's the problem? Uh, the focus we took uh, was on the uh, problem of maintaining the cash flow of the United States government uh, so that it can meet its obligations on a daily uh, basis. Um, the present, not, not some distant uh, future. 
And uh, uh, we found that uh, the Treasury Daily Statement, which is accessible to all of your listeners uh, by Googling Treasury Daily Statement, uh, is quite revealing uh, on this uh, matter. Uh, the U.S. is basically uh, living on its ability uh, to obtain credit at the uh, moment. Uh, and a good percentage of the daily cash flow has to be raised in capital markets. Now, there's a whole school of thought which today argues that uh, the fact that interest rates on U.S. debt are so low, uh, there can't possibly be a problem. That the U.S. creditworthiness has been vindicated uh, by capital markets. But those arguments don't confront the fact that uh, the uh, demand for U.S. debt is coming mostly uh, from the Federal Reserve, which is itself an agency of the U.S. Uh, government. It's not market determined, uh, but uh, politically uh, determined. So one thing I would also add to this is it's not up to us. It is up to the voters and then to a lesser extent, I think, the interest groups that influence U.S. politics even if we could raise taxes or cut spending or even inflate away the debt, we may not. I believe that it's entirely plausible and so far no one has disagreed with us that voters may have other preferences, particularly when it comes to foreign creditors. And is it your sense that, so what I'm hearing in part is that there's um, a need to separate concerns over rollover risk, which maybe have been, um, that's a, a risk that hasn't been taken seriously enough in discussions of the U.S. debt with sort of long, longer term structural considerations about the sustainability of the debt. Do you um, have anything to say about the latter question? Yes, indeed. We think we thought a lot about it. Our paper touches on a number of these issues. In particular, we believe that it is plausible that there will be some kind of reckoning, some kind of reorganization. It could happen quickly, it could happen slowly, uh, and figure out which of the many promises of the United States government will be paid in full and on time, and which will be modified. Our paper was inspired in part because we kept coming up against this conventional wisdom that assumed often implicitly that the formal debt, that is the US Treasury securities, must be repaid in full and on time, that they have de jure and de facto priority over any other promise made by the United States government. And we kept thinking that may not be right. Imagine that there is some kind of enormous problem where it's obvious to the electorate that there is a choice to be made between social security being paid um, in large measure, or our repaying of US Treasury securities that are held by some kind of foreign concerns. It's not clear to us that the electorate will say, ooh, we must repay that formal debt. Particularly, as Ed and I kept thinking, twice in US history, we have, we believe, undertaken restructurings of the formal debt of the United States of America. Once at the beginning of the United States history, when Alexander Hamilton engineered what was a restructuring. Our creditors, the US creditors, did not get repaid in full and on time. And then again, at the beginning of the New Deal era, when the gold clauses in United States government debt were abrogated. That too, we call a restructuring, and many financial historians classify that as a default. 
We've done it before, we can do it again. Um, Julia and Ed, uh, when you wrote your paper, if I recollect, it, it was prior to us recognizing the devastation that would be wrought by the COVID-19 pandemic. And my memory is that there, there is somewhere a sentence or two in your paper that said, you know, some kind of unusual exogenous shock, maybe you didn't use those words, could force us to take uh, what is discussed in this paper seriously. Now, so far, we have sort of avoided that reckoning in part because the Fed has made money so easy and we're uh, willing to allow this sort of self-purchase of ginormous amounts of US treasuries. But is it your sense that the, the relevance of your paper has dramatically increased? I think so. And we don't know what the limits are of the Fed taking all this debt. We express no view on this because it won't be obvious the extent to which we as a nation can, in effect, uh, acquire our own debt. It won't be obvious what the limits are until, of course, afterward. We are watching very carefully this fascinating phenomenon of very low interest rates that may, repeat may, be in large measure a product of the Federal Reserve's policies. But we don't know for sure. We want to be set up though, so that if there is some sort of sudden increase in the interest rate, which of course would very much change the financial prospects of the United States of America, that we'll be ready. And that's what our paper is all about, is to try to convince people. And so far, I think we've been fairly successful in thinking, well, maybe this is something that, that we can think about. So I, I'm, to follow up on this, I don't know if you've been following the sort of similar discussion in Italy. Mark started out by mentioning Italy, and there has been a discussion in that context where the ECB is doing something very similar to what is happening in the US, uh, essentially buying huge amounts of Eurozone country debt for its account. Uh, and, and there's been discussion among Italian politicians as to whether or not uh, one solution to the very large debt to GDP ratio that Italy shows now, I, th I think it's in the range of 150% and looking like it will go even higher, uh, is for just the ECB to cancel that debt. After all, it's just an accounting matter. They print the money, they buy the debt, uh, they print the money, they buy their debt, so just you know, cancel it. Is that something that would remedy a significant portion of this problem? Well, uh, it would uh, eliminate one problem and cause many others. If the uh, uh, Fed were to, uh, to lose uh, that uh, substantial amount of assets, uh, it would uh, have an impact on the value of the dollar. We think uh, a major downside possibility here is inflation. And that it may be that at the moment, uh, inflation is being held in check by the increasing terror of the American population, which has caused a, a great increase in the demand for liquidity or decline in the monetary velocity. Uh, and uh, 
when that, if whatever uh, causes the fear to go away and uh, people again begin spending at the same rate, uh, there's going to be enormous uh, price pressure. Uh, and inflation itself has its own uh, costs. Uh, where we differ from uh, the uh, modern monetary uh, theorists uh, is that we think history teaches that uh, the uh, events uh, of such a default are far more rapid and dramatic. It's not some process where you can sort of borrow until you find that you're having trouble borrowing. When you know you have trouble borrowing, you're already in deep trouble. So this is maybe a good time to separate, at least in, in my mind, it's helpful to separate your proposals for dealing with uh, an acute liquidity crisis uh, from the separate part of the paper that encourages us to think about planning ex ante some restructuring mechanism. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask a bit about the latter aspect of the paper and to have you explain a little more about why it's important to have that kind of mechanism in place ex ante. So I've always, part of the, the conflict in the Euro area is precisely over this project, the project of figuring out what a debt restructuring should look like if one were to occur. And, and I've always been sort of shocked at how controversial that project has been since my perspective is sort of, well, this is all local law governed debt anyway. And, you know, everybody knows if they think about it, that you, when push comes to shove, will find a way to restructure it. Uh, you'll just do it, you'll retroactively create some kind of mechanism and, and that will, um, it'll be a, a lumpy road, but it'll get the job done. And so I'm wondering why we need to have a mechanism in place ex ante. Doesn't everybody sort of already know that this debt is restructurable based on the historical experiences you've, you've highlighted? That's a great question. I would say the reason to think carefully ahead of time, fall in the, the reasons fall into two categories. The first is democratic legitimacy. I believe that it's hard when there is a crisis to have the sort of democratic deliberation that I think is at the foundation of our constitutional system. I want to hear from voters. I want to hear from different interest groups about what they think are the most important priorities for the United States government. As I've mentioned, we are skeptical with the idea, but we don't know for sure, we're not the electorate. We're skeptical that the electorate believes that the formal debt must come before all other promises, particularly safety net uh, expenditures and um, old age pensions like the ones in the old age social security program, but we don't know for sure. So I think having a conversation about this, having some kind of democratic deliberation would be extremely valuable. Second is prudential considerations. You could be right that the basic formula that has been put into place in most sovereign debt restructurings could be brought out, updated, tweaked a bit, and would work for United States government debt. But I'm not sure about that. For one thing, the United States government debt restructuring would be enormous. For another, as Ed has noted on many occasions, the world financial system has US government debt as one of its foundations in a way that other sovereign debt is not. And that I think um, requires a lot of very careful thinking. I'd like to hear from experts in world financial systems 
to what extent and in what ways uh, U.S. government debts, a role in the world financial system, affects whether or not we could impose the standard restructuring. So there's a lot of reason to think that uh, the sophisticated personnel in the U.S. Department of Treasury are uh, disabled from thinking through these problems uh, because they're so fearful that if it was discovered that they were analyzing them, uh, that would itself uh, cause a financial crisis in the U.S. debt market. That leaves uh, the task of any uh, preparatory analysis uh, to people who are independent and detached from the uh, Treasury and uh, in a position uh, to have their own private uh, views. Um, and we very much would be delighted if you and your listeners would uh, react to our paper by helping us try to think through challenges. Uh, one that I think we have not really addressed, and, and there are a number of such things, uh, we thought we were kind of going very far just to try and just, uh, support the notion that there is a risk attached to U.S. debt. Uh, uh, the uh, relationship between U.S. debt and the global banking system uh, is uh, a real uh, problem. And uh, it requires, we don't have any answers and it requires more thought. Uh, how would you deal with the substantial uh, treasury position held uh, particularly by U.S. banks who were encouraged by bank regulation uh, to hold uh, treasuries. We don't know. Uh, we'd love to hear people's ideas about that. And is your sense that having, let's say, we find a way for the U.S. to commit to, or, or at least to maybe specify is a better word, to specify some debt restructuring mechanism that could be invoked if the need arose. Is your sense that that mechanism would be exclusive, that the government could credibly commit to using it and no other? Or do you still think there would be lurking in the back of people's minds the sort of awareness that this is all ultimately, um, you know, this is governed by US law and that the constraints are really only the weak constraints that the US legal system imposes and the US political system imposes on kind of retroactivity? The latter. I think that we can certainly propose frameworks. I do not think it is possible for the United States government to articulate a firm free commitment. Uh, that was one reason that we wrote the paper, that we were so convinced that it's at least a formidable question whether or not the conventional wisdom that the United States government has pre-committed to repay the treasury security, to pay off the treasury securities in full and on time um, is actually uh, true. My guess is it is not. So I don't think that we can explain in advance, this is what we're going to do if we run into serious trouble. Um, as we were just discussing, we know that very strong exogenous shocks are possible. We do not know from what direction they'll come and we don't know what magnitude they will be. But I do think that even though we can't probably articulate a firm plan, we commit to it um, in advance, I still think it's very useful to think about the considerations. I have a lot of confidence in the world financial markets and those who participate in them to think about issues of political and financial risk. And the more these ideas are in the air, on the table, 
the more I think participants will have in mind um, exactly what it is, or at least roughly what it is, what the United States government can commit to. In an ideal world, I think, the idea, the notion that US government debt is risk-free would be relaxed a bit. Um, that, I think, has the potential to mean that interest rates on US government debt would reflect uh, market participants' estimate um, estimates of what risks they're actually running. So that is one of our hopes in writing this paper. I have difficulty imagining that such a procedure could uh, resemble uh, the traditional uh, private reorganization procedure or the uh, procedures used by uh, other sovereigns. I think it would have to be very fast, sort of like Roosevelt's revaluation uh, of gold. Uh, and uh, uh, therefore, uh, whoever's doing it uh, has to, uh, won't have time to think. Uh, and so whatever thinking is going to be done uh, has to be done in advance and it can only be done uh, by uh, independent detached critics and commentators and academics. Ed, you brought up the Roosevelt administration's actions. Uh, yes. With respect to uh, the gold clauses uh, among other things. And uh, that brings us to the question, uh, Mark and I have been discussing this question before the podcast, which is that whenever we try to talk about this question, sometimes in the context of talking to some of our colleagues who shall go nameless uh, about your wonderful paper, uh, they, uh, they stop the conversation by saying, well, you two have never understood the constitution uh, that's they're talking to mark and to me uh, and really just it to me prohibits <laughs> it prohibits uh, such actions one would have thought you would have learned that in law school now my sense is you think that's complete bunk correct yes but and what is the argument can you give us a sense of what they say i mean do they send you angry emails saying you're out to lunch. You should have taken your con law class more seriously. Uh, yeah. You're outrageous. Or, or do they say, we concede. You are right. You non-con law people are right. Surely that's not true. I've never heard a con law person concede anything. Well, I, I count as, we, we count as quasi-con law people because we teach a course called the Monetary Constitution. So we, we declared ourselves to be quasi-con law people. Also, I've taught the basic constitutional law class um, a couple of times, and I have argued that the 14th Amendment, the public debt clause, is not a hard constraint. And when we first started workshopping this paper, we did hear occasionally that we must be insane to suggest this, but that really has, has gone away. And I've gotten some really terrific uh, responses from con law experts, and no one is disagreeing with us. Uh, there are, to the extent they don't see things quite the same way that we do, they're disagreements of emphasis, I'd say, rather than um, rather than uh, of, of, of strong, strong disagreement. So to give the argument why the 14th Amendment's public debt clause is not a hard constraint against restructuring, I think we should just run through one at a time the so-called modalities of constitutional interpretation. So putting on my con law expert hat, I say, let's look at the text 
Let's look at the original public meeting. Let us look at precedent. Let us look at constitutional structure. And finally, let's look at prudential considerations. So we start with text. What does text say? Text says the debt of the United States shall not be questioned. Okay, great. What does question mean? Well, questioned generally refers to some sort of claim about the debt's validity. I think about your work, Me Too, on odious debt and how sometimes someone will show up and say, we don't owe this debt because it was put in place by a government that was not legitimate, right? That's the sort of claim that the 14th Amendment's public debt clause speaks to. If we try to do that, say, hey, we're going to repudiate the debt. Guess what? We're not paying. We're going to claim that the various Congresses who borrowed this money were you know, illegitimate, that the, they, they were elected by fraud. We're just not paying. That would be a different matter. And there, the 14th Amendment's public debt clause, I believe, might apply. But we're not talking about questioning the debt. We admit that the United States borrowed this money. We, just as many private bankrupts or people in financial distress, admit, hey, I borrowed the money. But what are we going to do now? because there's a problem in my paying it back, right? Second, we look at history, at original public meaning of the 14th Amendment. All the research that I have seen, and here I can't get any con law expert to quarrel with me, all the research that I have seen suggests that at the time the 14th Amendment was ratified, the public debt clause was understood very narrowly. It was understood to be addressing a risk of federal debt repudiation. There was a fear amongst the Republicans that Southern Democrats were going to ally with Northern moderates in Congress to repudiate the federal debt. Now, this risk, even back when the 14th Amendment was drafted and ratified, did not seem to be frankly so great. They were more worried about some of the things that were for, are, are forbidden later on in the 14th Amendment. Namely, they were more concerned about the possibility uh, that there would be some sort of payment to former Confederates to compensate them for the, um, the freeing of the enslaved peoples. But the fact is that looking at original public meaning, what this public debt clause addresses is the threat of federal debt repudiation, not restructuring. Third constitutional modality precedent. Are there cases on this? Well, there's really only one case, as you know, U.S. v. Perry. And so there's one case, but that case, as you noted in the, um, in the recent, um, recent book chapter uh, um, that, you, that, you, uh, that you published, that case um, is very confused. Uh, the statements in the uh, Supreme Court majority opinion about the meaning of the public debt clause can be classified as dicta because the outcome of the case did not hinge on their interpretation of the 14th Amendment, this public debt clause. Um, in addition, the fact, and the fact is that there are no damages, that, that it was found that there had been no damages, um, that to me is a powerful indication uh, that, uh, that the 14th Amendment's public debt clause does not function as a hard constraint, uh, regardless, of, um, regardless of, of, of any verbiage in any opinion. Right. Next constitutional modality is structure. Look at the structure of our constitutional government. In particular, look at how we have divided powers among the executive, legislative, and judiciary and, and judicial branches. 
Congress has, we are told again and again and again, the power of the purse. Now this is of course a bit of an oversimplification. We understand that the executive branch um, and now to the Federal Reserve also have a lot of influence over the money flows of the United States government. But the basic idea that decisions about finance are made by Congress still holds. Does that mean that the judiciary is irrelevant to public expenditures? No. Um, it is quite plausible that the Fifth Amendment, uh, which concerns takings, um, is self-executing in the sense uh, that, we, that Congress's approval is not necessary um, to waive sovereign immunity in order for there to be enforceable judgments. That's a whole area we, that, um, that uh, we, we, we think about a lot and uh, where there are, I think, no, no absolute answers. But looking at the constitutional structure, it is very hard to imagine a world in which the judicial branch is the major player in determining how the federal government spends money. I'm not saying that it's impossible for the judicial branch to declare that property has been taken, that damages are now owed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Even in the absence of the Tucker Act where Congress has expressly waived the sovereign immunity of the United States. What I am saying is that it's very difficult under our constitutional order to imagine a world where the judicial branch is declaring that, oh yes, all those treasury securities, those absolutely must have total priority over social security, over national defense spending, over any, over SNAP, over other things that are considered to be important by Congress um, responding to the electorate. And then finally, final uh, constitutional interpretation, the final modality of constitutional interpretation is prudential considerations. It is often said the constitution is not a suicide pact. It is often pointed out that <laughs> Our system, our constitutional system has some play in the joints. We've certainly seen this in responses to COVID-19. To Ed and me, the play in the joints is a strength, not a weakness of our constitutional system. Of course, there's some play in the joints when it comes to prudential considerations. The system needs to work. And if we run into very difficult, run into great difficulty, it is very difficult to imagine a world where we in effect put ourselves, put the United States to terrible agony in order to pay off creditors. At some point, the electorate is going to say, the financial system should serve us. We don't want to serve the world financial system. And I can't say that I would blame them. We certainly see this in many other nations. We see electorates saying, whoa, it's not that our country didn't borrow this money, but eh, shouldn't the financial system in effect, be something that, that helps all of us, not something that makes our lives one of terrible, poverty-stricken misery. Ah, that was wonderful. I, if only my con law class had been that interesting. Thank you, Julia. <laughs> you have finally, for the first time in my life, made constitutional law uh, interesting. Uh, but... Um, this is a good time for us to go to the break because I know that uh, Mark is going to uh, ask more about the damages question uh, that you raised. But now let's take a brief. Now that we're back, I wanted to ask a slightly different question. Um, so, so we were talking a little bit about the benefits of having the 
the mechanism for restructuring debt specified um, in advance. And I'm assuming there's an additional benefit that we didn't quite talk about, which is that once you specify it, then any new debt that's issued is going to be subject to that mechanism and you can restructure then without any difficulty. Um, can we sort of stipulate that in addition to applying to newly issued debt, the restructuring mechanism would also apply to debt that's in existence at the time? Because I'm I'm sort of interested in the question of damages um, for people whose rights under U.S. Uh, securities have been abrogated by this mechanism. So what would the damages likely be? And, and to be, maybe to, to be a little more concrete, I'm imagining something that whether by virtue of a collective voting mechanism, or as Ed was talking about, by virtue of some more efficient, more centralized mechanism, um, just results in the payment of less than what was promised. So how do we think about the remedy there? First of all, is this a is it a tort remedy? Is it a contract remedy? Does this only come up in the context of a takings case? What are the, the rights of an investor whose interest has been abrogated like that? These are fabulous questions. We think about them a lot. I'm actually right now planning a short January term course that on this, uh, a course called Eminent Domain, Expropriation, and Emergency Action. There are no hard and fast answers. One benefit to putting a restructuring mechanism in debt going forward, I believe, is that it would have a powerful effect on the takings claims. In effect, it would, I think, make it so that the, uh, the owners of new debt, the debt that has in their provision some kind of restructuring mechanism, uh, would have much weaker takings claims. Um, Ed, you have some thoughts about that, though. You've often, um, over the years, pointed out to me that the terms of US Treasury securities um, include almost nothing. Well, of course, one classic way to uh, reduce the uh, burden of the debt is to inflate the currency when you denominate the debt in your own currency. That uh, has only minimal savings for the U.S. because the duration of the U.S. debt is so short. Um, it's, uh, it's in the three-year range and it's refinanced at an enormous rate. And each ref, uh, refin refinancing security uh, uh, has to carry the current interest rate. Uh, so there's enormous vulnerability for the U.S. Uh, to face higher interest rates. Remember, this uh, general taking issue is, of course, uh, raised by such current events as the pandemic lockdowns. Uh, do businesses uh, have a takings claim for uh, losing the value of their business in order to protect the public? Uh, I think the answer to that is no, but uh, there are some very unhappy uh, business owners who've lost an enormous amount of uh, money. And I think the answer is maybe, actually. I'm more, I'm more uh, optimistic about some, not all, but some of these takings claims. But this just shows you how, how complicated it is and how inevitably speculative our comments have to be. So I, I think any uh, program to reorganize uh, the uh, debt uh, is going to have to deal with the jurisdiction of the Court of Claims and the uh, Tucker Act. 
which now provides a general claim for money damages for taking. The Perry case was brought in the Court of Claims under the uh, Tucker Act, but Congress can change the provisions of the Tucker Act. And then there are questions that whether that itself uh, would be uh, an actionable uh, uh, taking uh, case. Exactly. A lot of this comes back to this question we flagged earlier. Is the takings clause self-executing? What would the uh, takings claims be? What would plausible takings claims against the US government be in the absence of the Tucker Act? And of course, Perry itself sort of highlights the fluidity, maybe that's too polite a word, but the fluidity of the remedies analysis, I guess, in cases like this. So I'm imagining a scenario much like in the gold clause cases, where as a result of the restructuring, the market value of treasury securities has been affected relatively little or has maybe even been improved, you know, in, in recognition of the fact that um, full payment on the new restructured terms is more likely than was true before the restructuring. So if we take the kind of change in the market value of the securities as a measure of an investor's harm, there's been really no harm at all. Whereas if we take something like the contract remedy, where we're giving the investor an amount that would sort of put them in as good a position they would have been in with full performance, then you have a much greater remedy, right? It's the, you owe me in effect the, the face value of the, the original security. So I guess that's the, the question that I'm especially interested in. Like which of those remedies do you think is more likely the correct one? Obviously the latter, undoes the restructuring for some significant subset of, of investors. I think fluidity is a great word because I think that's exactly what goes on as was pointed out after the gold clause cases and was that it was very hard to say for sure what the Supreme Court had done except that the aggrieved creditor of the United States government had not recovered. So there was a sense in which the damages analysis seemed to be the tail that was wagging the dog. Uh, no damages were found, which meant the Court of Claims didn't have jurisdiction, which, which meant that the case, in effect, evaporated. That reasoning of the United States Supreme Court in U.S. v. Perry had, was unsatisfactory the day Perry was handed down, and it remains unsatisfactory. Uh, that's one reason that uh, Ed and I do not think that Perry is a precedent of the United States Supreme Court that withstands much, um, frankly, um, basically withstand, uh, does not support anything like um, a robust constitutional doctrine. So the answer to your great questions really is, I don't know. I mean, there would be various arguments made. And I think that a very important prudential consideration would be what sort of expenditure, what sort of outflow from the US Treasury would result from these arguments? That is not to say that prudential considerations are the whole game when it comes to constitutional law, they aren't. But prudential considerations, what the actual impact would be on the United States Treasury, will, I believe, be very important, both for reasons of prudence and also for reasons of constitutional structure. As we were discussing before the break, um, the main authority for determining how the United States government spends money is vested by the Constitution in the legislative branch. It's not to say that the executive and judicial branches are not important. They are. Not to say that their decisions don't have 
very large effects on the finances of the US government, they do. But the primary power is in that legislative branch, particularly in the House of Representatives. And it is very difficult to, for me anyway, to envision a world in which the major player, the major decision maker, ends up being the judiciary. So Ed and Julia, I'm, I'm wondering whether, and I, I confess I now, now I forget whether you talk about this uh, in the paper, but I don't think it was a big part for sure. Um, but Ed mentioning the Court of Claims uh, reminded me that I had wanted to ask you, uh, and this is about the challenges to congressional action to enable the restructuring of the Puerto Rican debt. So as I see it with my complete lack of knowledge of uh, public law, what was done for the Puerto Rican debt is, is very similar to what one might imagine could be done for the US uh, federal debt. And litigation certainly was commenced in the Court of Claims. So I, is that relevant? Should we be watching what happened in Puerto Rico? And I, I confess, I don't now know what happened to that litigation. I think that at, at least at the first step, the Court of Claims allowed them in. Yes, I think we should be watching that. I think we should be watching everything, frankly. You mentioned Italy and so, and so forth. I think we should be watching every, um, every sovereign debt restructuring, um, both um, within and outside the United States. I think we also uh, have looked very carefully at uh, various uh, municipal bankruptcies in the United States. One thing that is, I think, very um, important to note when we look at Detroit and, um, I, and a couple of the, uh, the counties in the US who have ended up in bankruptcy proceedings is that in general, pension creditors tend to do pretty well and that, um, that the holders of the formal debt tend to have, so far at least, experienced greater haircuts. So that's something that we, that we watch very carefully. We've not yet seen a uh, major insolvency of a state of the United States. There are, of course, a great many proposals to uh, modify the bankruptcy code so as to enable individual US states to go through bankruptcy. Um, uh, regardless of whether that happens or not, though, we may see some de facto restructurings, significant financial restructurings of individual US states, and we're watching those too. My um, expectation ex ante is that, again, the uh, holders of debt securities will end up taking um, often a greater hit or will not be assigned um, absolute jury or de facto priority over those who have pension expectations, uh, but we'll have to see. So I would say it's all relevant and it's only getting more fascinating. So I, I'm gonna ask um, maybe, uh, I wanna for our last few minutes, uh, turn a little bit to the behavior of the US Treasury. We talked about the reaction of the constitutional law folks, but in my experience, and I, I think I speak for Mark, although he can tell you, um, Another community and a community that, in a sense, we interact much more than, uh, much more with than uh, constitutional law folks, uh, is the community of people who work in various debt management offices or treasury departments or finance ministries 
around the world. And whenever we write a little paper saying uh, this country or that country should plan for a possible financial crisis that is uh, looming given their behavior or their finances, we are assured that we get nasty messages from our friends in those departments or, or former friends in those departments uh, saying, you are doing real destruction to us by even raising this question. And so I am wondering whether uh, you have received uh, letters, emails, uh, phone calls uh, from the US Treasury Department expressing their affection for uh, the project that you are undertaking or the opposite, or maybe just uh, dead silence because they're so terrified of what you're talking about. A dead silence. Yes, I'd love to hear from them. We, we've heard from people via Twitter, we've heard from some people via email and so on. We've had a lot of great conversations, but as yet we have not interfaced with the United States Treasury. I would welcome the chance to talk to public officials about this. And I would try very hard to sell them on the idea that um, Ed and I and others similarly situated, you and Mark too, are in the position of being able to speak more freely in public and that that could be an advantage that we can go out and run and, and suggest things and get reactions and so forth. And our suggestions, our thoughts, will not uh, terrify markets, I believe. I would be quite surprised if the world financial markets um, seized up because of a statement by a law professor. Whereas uh, a US Treasury official, I think has to be a bit more circumspect. So th this um, reminds me of uh, the debates that took place during the attempts, uh, fairly successful attempts by the US Treasury in both 2003 uh, and then in 2014, uh, one under uh, the Bush administration, the other under the Obama administration, to persuade other countries to put in place restructuring provisions in their uh, government debt. And the US was at the forefront of uh, urging uh, even arm twisting these countries to do that. And US Treasury officials traveled the globe uh, to do this. But whenever the question was asked of those in the US Treasury as to why they did not set an example for everybody else, uh, since they were saying this, these are necessary and will not cause any increase in the cost of capital, the US Treasury said, but, but of course we would never do something like that uh, for our pristine bonds. That, that, that's just unthinkable. Does that experience uh, suggest to you that the, we're gonna keep our heads in the sand until the proverbial shit hits the fan? Well, it could. I hope not, though. I mean, one another. You, you've touched on another inspiration for our paper. It kept we kept reading about sovereign debt, as, as you know. Ed and I have been teaching this course on the monetary constitution for a couple of years. Now we kept reading about how sovereign debt and sovereign debt difficulty and sovereign debt restructuring is a problem for the non-super rich countries, and we kept thinking, eh, 
that's not what it looks like to us. Some of the very richest nations, Italy, the United States, a number of others, Japan, we can look at and think, yeah, you're a very, very rich nation, but that doesn't mean that sovereign debt might not be a problem for you. Uh, the attitude that you described is, I think, unfortunate. It is, alas, unsurprising, as, uh, as there's a tendency amongst the richest nations to imagine that, uh, that the sorts of problems that bedevil other nations can't come to their door. I think history teaches otherwise. So I would, again, very much welcome the chance to be in, char in, in, in contact with, um, with treasury officials, particularly in the United States, but, but for many, frankly, um, highly prosperous nations who think we can't have a problem. Um, I think we could. And I don't think that there's any particular shame in this. Uh, after all, uh, this um, credit markets are um, reflect our guesses about the future. And we all know that predictions are hard, as Yogi Berra put it, particularly about the future. And so some of them are not going to, um, are not going to turn out. So being ready um, for, uh, for difficulties, I think, is a sign of wisdom, not a sign of weakness. Maybe that's a good point to take us to our end. But I wanted to squeeze in one more question, if I could, which is, um, if we can step back a little, one of the things I was taken by in the paper is there was a um, sort of a, a deeply embedded optimism, it seemed to me, in the, the view that while US political, US politics and US constitutional uh, dynamics involve a lot of friction, they wind up producing durable and hopefully quite sensible solutions of many times many times. And I'm wondering, it hasn't been that long since you wrote the paper, but I'm wondering if you sort of still feel that way um, in our present climate. And maybe a different way, a more politic way to put the question would be, what circumstances do you foresee would have to be the present before US political actors would actually undertake a project like what you want them to undertake? Well, the optimism is based on U.S. history. We've we've been in many a pickle in the past, and uh, sometimes in ways that are completely unexpected and surprising, uh, we find our way to uh, a, a satisfactory uh, resolution. Uh, there's no assurance that will happen again, uh, but uh, our our study of the American history and American constitutional history. Uh, uh, kind of supports uh, that. Uh, remember, the Constitutional Convention was kind of a, a last uh, uh, effort to uh, save a sinking ship uh, and uh, the, it faced a very great uh, adversity and odds, uh, but uh, they made it through. Uh, and uh, we think the similar uh, spirit is going to be required to cope with this problem. And it would be, uh, much better to confront this problem sooner rather than later. Uh, the more enormous the debt grows and the more the reliance uh, on it and the promises of the government, uh, the greater will be the uh, catastrophic effects uh, if those promises are not uh, prom uh, delivered on. Uh, uh, so uh, we, we're hoping that conversations even like this podcast uh, 
and contribute to uh, generating a discussion and, and uh, effort to locate ways and paths uh, to uh, uh, resolution. Uh, there, there will be a need for uh, a change in the politics, uh, but uh, who not, uh, there's every reason to think it will happen. We've been through the Civil War, we've been through a lot of catastrophes. Indeed, and I think we have a very engaged electorate. So I see the turnouts of the last election to be a great sign that has spoiled my optimism. Well, normally we like to end on a bit of a pessimistic note in keeping with Me Too's general preferences, but I guess that that will have to do. <laughs> Thank you both so much for for joining us. So it, it was a real treat to have you both. Yes. Thank yeah. you very, very much. Thank you. And